Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. Still sort of surprised you guys that that people seem so astounded by the honesty of this book because every memoir I've read, and anyway, unless it's some sort of um, sanitized version of someone's life, then more of a vanity project is raw and is real. That person you heard at the top of the show probably needs no introduction. It's Katie Couric. She has written a new book called Going There, and it's been kind of controversial. But first up, the always controversial, me, Bill McCuddy, along with David Graver and Mr. Scott Alexander. Going deep on the Today Show, Matt Lauer, everything that's happened to Katie Couric on the Accutron Show right after this. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. Did I ever tell you about the time that Lauren Michaels blew me off? No. He was walking with Merrill Hemingway into this big party at the top of 30 Rock. Now, it was a Christmas party for all talent that was associated with NBC. And because I was at CNBC or its sort of sister company called America's Talking, there I was uh, with Bob Hope, with uh, Jay Leno, with anybody you could possibly name. Matt Lauer was there. We'll talk about him a little later. And Katie Couric. Katie Couric runs up to me. I had just won a uh, talk show contest like a month earlier. She holds my hand in the air and she says, the winner and still champion, Bill McCuddy. This was in front of everybody from NBC. Uh, Warren Littlefield goes, who the hell is Bill McCuddy? Um, <laughs> the point is, Katie Couric's a lovely person. She's written a memoir. We've been kind of friends ever since. And uh, she's on the cover of People magazine. She has uh, allegedly said she's told it all, but she's got a little more to tell us. Okay, back to... Well, you've got to... a little more to tell us, I think. Uh, I'm not sure how Lorne Michaels figured <laughs> Lorne it out. <laughs> Lorne Michaels walks in with Merrill Hemingway, and they're walking through this party, and I say to him, Hi, Lorne, I'm Bill McCuddy. Now, you never break stride. Uh-huh. He keeps walking. I go, um, <laughs> I've written for Dennis Miller on Weekend Update. That's nice. Doesn't keep walking. Uh, keeps walking. I go, this conversation's over, isn't it? He goes, yes, it is. And he kept walking. <laughs> that That is how you blow someone off. Yeah. It was. It, As uh, only Lauren can blow. I should have written that down. Very effective. <laughs> it got a laugh, but did it get the right kind of laugh? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of laughter, Katie Couric has brought a lot of it to us as Peter Pan flying over uh, 30 Rock. Oh, uh, as uh, She's had some highs and some lows, and she's uh, a lovely, lovely person who's written, I guess, what you could call kind of a controversial book. I mean, when it first came out and no one had read it, they decided to pick it apart. And then she'll tell us about a tour she went on. It's incredibly sweet. I I spent some time with the book. It's it's really a sweet book because it's it's not that manicured, perfect 
you know, picket fence, America's sweetheart America's type sweetheart, of like hates. gloss. She, I mean, it's honest thing. because she's it's, a human. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And and like as she's been out doing media actually for the book, like I've seen her in various appearances. She was on Kara Swisher's podcast and a couple other places. And you're just like, oh, oh, wait. She is not afraid of anything. No, no, she's not. She talks about bulimia. She talks about Matt Lauer. She talks about uh, a husband she lost to cancer and her role that uh, became very prominent in her life, getting people to start getting a colonoscopy. And so she's— Yeah, talk about no fear. Like, I'll, I'll just go get a colonoscopy on but national That is going to be a change for a lot of people. I grew up with her on television in my house every single day. And you build a, a picture of who Katie Kirk is yourself from what you see on TV, and now she's stepping away from that and giving us something that's true and authentic. And I understand why people will struggle with it, but it's necessary. It is necessary. We're going there with her, and she does a killer, Larry King, when we return on The Accutron Show. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. It's happened. Katie Couric is joining us on the Accutron Show. Katie, welcome, and, and thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, this is part of your tour. You've been out on a book tour. So going there, which we've already talked about in the previous segment, is the memoir. And then you did like a, a road show with it. How did that go? It was great. It was really fun. Hi, guys. Um, <laughs> I went to 10 cities. I did a private event as my 10th city. I feel like a, a, you know, big musician or something. I had a private event, but, um, I, it was really fun. It was great to be out and actually see people in person versus doing it via zoom. Um, it was, it was a different kind of book tour. It was sort of a hybrid of a Ted talk meets a syndicated talk show meets a current affairs show. Um, and I interviewed different people in every stop. And so, for example, in Washington, I interviewed Nicole Hannah-Jones about the 1619 Project and then Kara Swisher about media and technology. In New York, I interviewed Lauren Manning, who was burned over 80% of her body on 9-11 and 20 years later, uh, you know, to kind of reconnect with her. A lot of these were either news stories or issues I had covered during the course of my career, revisiting those. And then in every city, I had a featured guest speaker. For example, Jen Garner spoke in LA. We had a conversation about her life and her passions. And before that, I interviewed Tarana Burke about Me Too, because I had done an hour documentary for National Geographic on gender inequality in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Hmm. And so they all had some kind of connection to a subject I had covered. And, um, you know, and, and I think it was a very different experience for people going there. It wasn't just me sitting in a chair talking about myself, blah, 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 for 90 minutes, because I thought, who wants to hear that? That's so boring. But it was sort of a it, it was really, I, I personally, I think it was very well produced and <laughs> I produced it. And I think the people who came were really interesting and entertaining and enlightening and inspiring and all the things that I wanted to do 
Did you have groupies? Uh, Did you have anybody that came to all of them? Um, no, I have my, my, one of my best friends, Wendy Walker, who features prominently in my memoir, right. Kim Bree, uh, she oh, came so to great. New York, she came to, she surprised me in Atlanta because her sister lives there. And then she came in Los, to Los Angeles because she lives in, um, Rancho Santa Fe, a couple of hours away. So that's so great. That it's like the, the pages of the book coming out to support the book. That's that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. The, the pop up book. Yeah. It's like people bump, yeah. right. jump out. And here's Wendy. And here's Wendy now out of the page. That's yeah, super that's cool. Crazy. I love that part uh, when you're talking about in the beginning of the book where you're just starting out and you guys are living together and it's this sort of Oscar and Felix situation with yeah. the two of you. That just cracked me up because it felt so like I loved how raw the book was in that way. It felt really like this, it's like, oh, it wasn't this like glossy magazine cover version of someone's life. It was like, yeah, no, I was the Oscar of that relationship. It was really <laughs> wonderful to see some, see you be that open. I'm still sort of surprised you guys that, that people seem so astounded by the honesty of this book because every memoir I've read and anyway, unless it's some sort of, um, sanitized version of someone's life than more of a vanity project is raw and is real and talks about real things and real emotions and real challenges and issues and, you know, highs and lows. So I guess it, it must be, you know, a slight anomaly for a journalist or a public <laughs> figure mm. to write kind of what they think and what they thought and their mistakes and their shortcomings and things that really pissed them off. And it was sort of like, well, what is the alternative to being honest? Is it just being a phony? And okay. I don't know about you, but I cannot tolerate phonies. I never could. And I prefer not to write a book instead of in, in, in instead of giving some sort of fake you know, sanitized version of my life. It just, I, I wouldn't waste my time. So that said, was there anything when it was all said and done that you would have taken out? Not really. Uh, um, I think that I probably could have talked about sort of my choices with the Ruth Bader Ginsburg interview in a more fulsome way. Um, you know, I think that I gave short shrift to what I did include and that was two minutes of her railing against Colin Kaepernick and calling him, you know, people who who take a knee during the national anthem as as stupid and arrogant and dumb and all these other things. And I kept out 20 seconds of her saying things that that I thought were very suspect, but I wasn't quite sure what she was talking about. She had to issue an apology mm. um, after after her statement. And I think that, of course, in, in, in the modern media landscape that got twisted and distorted and Fox news, eye news eyes, um, and, and hey, it's still I in my 401k. Yeah. I think, I, I think I should have been probably more clear about that. And, and I probably wouldn't use the word protect because ultimately I didn't really protect her. Um, but I, 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 I thought that what I was trying to illustrate is that journalists are human beings and we make human decisions on a pretty regular basis. 
And most journalists, I think, out there would say, yeah, you know, I made this choice or I slanted an article or I had an agenda going in. But nobody really wants to admit that. And I believe that the media ecosystem would be much healthier mm. if people occasionally said, you know, yeah, I, I probably couldn't should have done this. But I think uh, people are so paranoid. I think Andrew Sullivan has talked about this and and so um, insistent that they they want to take sort of the moral high ground on every decision they make. I think if we were more transparent and talked about things and and how we portray things, that actually trust would increase instead of decrease. Right, mistakes being something that occasionally happens to certain people. Like <laughs> yeah. every once in a while you make a mistake. And if you can own that mistake and say, hey, you know what? That was an error. And being able to go back, you know, or, and, you and know, even, have even the culture stop, forgive reflect you. On, even reflect on it and right. say, hmm, you know, would I have done the same for a conservative justice? I'm, I don't know, you know? Right. And um, I, I, you know, it's ironic because someone who interviewed me about the book I I said, have you ever had a situation like that? And I was told yes. Uh, and they were asked to keep something out. And I said, did you? And they said, yes. Hmm. And I said, well, are you going to talk about that in the piece? And of course not. And I just think, I know we're just at a very strange place in the culture for journalism. And it's become so, so polarized and and everything becomes sort of you know, the last stand mm -hmm. that that people can't have a nuanced, sophisticated, sophisticated conversation about journalistic choices that are made and possible mistakes that that were done. Now, it feels like a crisis of authority on multiple fronts. Like you've got all that stuff with the polarization happening. And then you've also got technology coming in where deep fakes and everything else are going to make it. And a 24 hour news cycle credibility that's constantly is become, being fed. Yeah. Yeah. And also. You were on the television in my home every day as I was growing up, and you were a point of joy and a place of security. David's 15. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, to the United States, sort of the face of America. And I think because of fandom and the way people build narratives around people, being your most authentic, truest self with this book is so refreshing and eye-opening for so many of us. But then... A lot of people just simply don't know how to understand a change to the narrative they've built for themselves when your audience was the entire United States every day, which is a profound thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I think about when I had that seat for 15 years and the times we were living in were so different. And, you know, when I was in my 20s, Wendy, my friend, Wendy, who, who figures prominently in this memoir, we lived together in Georgetown and we would turn, you know, I'd go down to her bedroom. She, we lived in a townhouse we rented and she had the basement and we'd turn on the Today Show to find out what was going on in the world. And when you really think about the evolution of media, the fact that iPhones didn't really come out till 2008, right? And that, um, you know, our, our, our habits have changed, our consumption habits for media have changed so dramatically that no one really occupies that space anymore. Nobody right. is kind of the go-to 
authority figure or the go-to role model or the go-to America's sweetheart, which I have a lot to say about that moniker, <laughs> which we can discuss later. Don't call her but that. So, so it, it's quite different. And I also think that that people really do have a hard time, not all people, that's a rash generalization, but sometimes it's hard for people to register and process nuance and complexity in an individual. They want to, and that was sort of the whole point of this book, ironically, was that people are much more complicated than they seem. They are extremely two-dimensional on television. People project what they want to project on them. And, you know, and, and, and I wrote this book because I'm sort of a multidimensional person who's got flaws and strengths and has made shitty decisions and sometimes good decisions. I've had, you know, victories and defeats and all that stuff. And I kind of wanted to, to crack open this whole idea of someone fitting in a box, which I talk about in the prologue and kind of, you know, almost crack the the screen and say, I'm a person. I'm not like your avatar of X, Y, or Z. You're a human who lives a life. Right. Which is so important in In that box. In this time, because people we have this tendency to see what you see there and you go, oh, it's perfect. And I th- I feel like I see this now more than ever in social media and these other things where you've got, you know, girls looking at Instagram and and not feeling, you know, good enough, whatever. You were so incredibly honest about um, the body image stuff and the um, eating disorder, you know, that, that uh, portion of the book was incredibly moving. And it feels like now more than ever cracking these the screen open. And seeing the real person just is is incredibly important. But it's interesting that people, you know, I'd be curious to hear what you all think, not to turn the tables, but why- Wait, are we on your podcast or are you on ours? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm curious why you think the reaction, I mean, for for regular people who are reading it, they're responding to it in in, a really incredible way. And it's so gratifying. Um, you know, cause I really wrote it for people, not for the media bubble of New York and not for people in the quote unquote industry, but for women who might be, and men who might be interested in my life, what it was like, how, what it felt like from my perspective, which is after all, what a memoir is supposed to do. It's a narrative from that individual's perspective. And yet, um, you know, some of the reaction, especially from like the really trashy media outlets, has been so bizarre to me. Um, well, they got to and- it first, didn't they? And that was one of the things you and I talked about in our emails is that when you go out onto the road, I think you're going to meet the people that have actually read the book. And what yeah. had, what happened, in the, as we mentioned, the 24-hour uh, news cycle a moment ago, it's like they're just looking to feed a furnace and they're just taking – they're just picking whatever they can out of the pile to make the most sensationalistic headline. And so – the first reaction to your book from people who hadn't seen it was, oh, my God, it does this and says that. And she's she hated this person and she was worried about her turf and blah, 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 right. blah, blah. And they're looking and for then, the gossip. Then yes. they yeah. didn't read the book. And so I when, know. And wh- then and then what's so interesting, you guys, in this this current landscape, then people, other people like crap outlets pick up and then just repeat it. And they haven't read the book. 
And then it ends up being in legitimate outlets and they haven't read the book. Right. But and they're you're quoting like, an illegitimate outlet. It's yeah. Like, but then you we get had to that the when we were kids. show. It was great. And they have read yeah. the book. It's like the game <laughs> telephone. It's like the telephone the game when we were kids. Deal. That's right. Yeah, right. Well, advertising <laughs> And is so sold. far, by the way, the Accutron show, is this on the list of shitty decisions you've made or good ones? <laughs> or is it well, too early? Okay. While advertising is sold on clicks, scintillating headlines are going to get the most clicks and it is what it is this horrible cycle of the internet that we all suffer under. I mean, you and wrote, it's called, you know, engagement through enragement. Right. Oh, right. exactly. calls it. Sure. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, need to know more than what those Facebook papers show that they prioritize the angry face emoji because anger keeps people engaged. And the longer they're engaged, the more they can, you know, they, it's all about, time on the platform money so yeah. yeah it's all about money and it's it's kind of destroying destroying our society in a weird way well it's, it's a funny thing like you talk about those early days of cnn where you know it was kind of like let's put on a show tack up some typewriters everyone go to know, cuba like, I, but like because you kind of didn't see this cable i guess was the beginning of tighter audience metrics but when something was broadcast you literally didn't know how many uh, households were, were receiving right. him, yeah. you know, and so the it almost seems like the less the metrics you have, the healthier the media environment, in a weird way. Indeed, yeah. I had no, I didn't know that you started at CNN until I read the book. I thought you just popped up on WRC when I was in Washington D.C. because that's the first place I saw you, and uh, I had no idea that was that on DeSalle Street when you were at ABC. Yeah. Around the corner from Joe and Moe's, yeah, around Connecticut yeah. Avenue and stuff. And, um, and and I met Larry Larry King at Duke Seabirds. Do you remember Duke Yeah, Seabirds? sure. That was right around the corner from there. And then he yeah. took you back. You, by the way, if you didn't coin this term in the book, it's the first time I've ever heard the term brag wall. I love that term. Is that you or did you did somebody tell you if you heard a brag wall and then explain about Larry what 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 happened in Larry King's apartment? Oh my God. Well, um, I, I don't know. I, I think I've heard it called a Brad wall before. It's where you put all your, you know, honorary degrees or photos with famous people or keys to the city. Um, and yes, well, I, it's a very funny chapter. He I had a big one. It's a little perils of Pauline-ish. Someone described it like a lifetime movie. I'd like to maybe say a, not quite a lifetime movie, but I went out on a date with Larry King uh, when I was, I believe I was maybe 29 and he was, or maybe just 20. Oh no, Neil Simon. I was 27. Larry King, I was 30, I think, or 29 or 30. And I went out on a date with him and it, the whole thing was just so Did you go out with funny. Castro when you were in Cuba? That's all these old guys. No, I know. No, I did not go out with Castro. Um, but you're but back anyway. in his apartment. You're at Larry King's apartment, and, and yeah, we go we go to some Italian restaurant on K Street. He's he is orders like uh, veal poached in chicken broth, and he you know he puts like his napkin in his in his uh, what do you Katie in try his, the veal, <laughs> no. and uh, you know we're sitting next to each other, which always creeps me out. But I didn't, you know, I was young. I didn't know to say. That I is a really weird setup. The yeah. side by side. Yeah, yeah. I hate it. First of all, it yeah. hurts your neck, you guys. It's yeah. such a bad, bad look. But, but anyway. it's a, but that's so, a typical TV look, like to be side so by side in the booth, right? Right. 
he had had a quadruple or quintuple bypass. And, and as I write in the book, nothing gets your juices flowing like a guy <laughs> who's had quintuple bypass surgery. So then we get into his Lincoln Town Park playing Jack Jones on the eight track. I am a singer. Anyway, so we drive and we're driving over Memorial Bridge. You know, I see the lions and I go, where are we going? My <laughs> place. And I was like, oh, shit. So we go to his place and and I'm just like, I, I, that part of the book is really funny. If you guys haven't read, it's like, mayday, mayday, dear Cosmo, <laughs> what do I do? Um, you know, the Playboy advisor or whatever. But I, um, That's the same okay. building, I think, that Charlie Wilson's war is shot in when, when uh, Tom Hanks in has Roslyn? the- Yeah, in Roslyn. And that, it's got a big peak at the top. Uh, it's I don't, like 20 Bill, stories. I don't remember. Yeah, All yeah, I yeah. remember was sweating bullets trying to figure out how to extricate, you know, <laughs> a board, a board, a board. But anyway, so we got to the apartment and, and uh, you know, he sort of like- went for it and I sort of laughingly pushed him away and said, Larry, you know, you're so nice and I've really enjoyed getting to know you, but I'm looking for someone a little closer to my age. And he goes, that's okay. Cause when I like, I really like. <laughs> oh, man. And I, what? What does that mean? I think the, all anyway. the hairs on the back of everyone's neck listening to this yeah. just went up. Well, this, this is the thing. Did you grab a key to the, any city on your way out? <laughs> No, Cincinnati. No. I got Cincinnati. <laughs> uh, there is so much more to talk to you about. We're going to take a break, but Katie Couric is going to tell us about uh, everything else that's happened to her uh, since uh, writing this book and being here on the Accutron show is obviously the pinnacle or zenith of her career. And uh, we will do that right after this break. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the legacy collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. We're back with Katie Couric. She has a memoir called Going There, and there is a lot of there that she goes to. One of the things she talks about uh, is her infamous uh, partner, Mr. Matt Lauer, and uh, she was talking to Scott in the break about uh, how much more she likes Scott than me because she's convinced Scott read the book, and I didn't. actually he listened to it on audio. And also during and the break— I have to say, uh, for anybody who's going to get the book, the audible version is amazing because Katie reads it, and all those impressions like the one you just heard of There's Larry acting. King, There's acting involved, no question. In and she plays it all. Um did you really require, or did Neil Simon really require blood pressure medicine when you went out with him? Well, no, that was his, uh, you know. I know we, that was his we, excuse. Do we have to talk about all my bad dates? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun. All right, sorry, yeah. Um, so you're on the Today Show. Uh, you know, when I won the contest, we were talking at the top of the show about uh, the America's Talking thing. They literally said to me the night before, you're either going to be interviewed by Katie or it's going to be Bryant. And I said, oh, okay. And they said, well, you definitely want Katie. And I said, why? And it, they said, because America will like you more. 
if Katie Couric interviews you. So, oh, that's interesting. Here I am. And <laughs> you did a little better it after the, that day than I did. But uh, the point is, uh, you have had a storied career on the Today Show that included uh, Matt Lauer. And you talk about that in the book. Uh, and you were pleased uh, with the way that that has, at first, as we talked earlier, they were everybody was jumping on it. But you think, not to term it in a Fox News way, but that you were kind of fair and balanced with him. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I listen, I tried to talk about what it was like for me to process it and to not come up with with, you know, a big I mean, I do indict Matt's behavior, um, but I also think what I try to illustrate in the book is the evolution uh, that I went through. Uh, regarding a lot of individuals and this reckoning we had with the Me Too movement. Um, other than than David, I think we're of a certain age, Bill, Scott, and myself, um, where certain patterns of behavior, certain accepted behaviors were, were able to flourish in a work environment that weren't cool you know, but that we became slightly inured to. And I think I described sort of the, what was going on in a network news organization that was not unique to NBC, but in terms of the inner office fraternization, the affairs, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, a permissive environment leads to um, much more serious transgressions. It wasn't Exactly Mad Men, but it wasn't too far from it. And I think that what happened was this this court's correction took place and the behavior that had heretofore been acceptable suddenly was not. And um, and I don't even know how acceptable what Matt did was uh, was, but I think we all started looking at things from an entirely different lens, often ushered in by younger women. Like my daughters and I talked about this a lot. And there's one line in my book tour and the book where it gets a, a huge round of applause every time I say it. And it is, why should the onus be on women to navigate men's advances instead of on men to stop making them? And I think for so long, women were expected to handle, you know, boorish behavior in the workplace. And I think, you know, you wrap, we just, that, that was sort of the way things were, that you had to laugh it off, or you had to risk losing your job if you gave, you know, said, talk to the hand and, 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 and things changed quite quickly appropriately. Can he he ever um, come back? uh, That's really not for me to say. Um, I think it would be, it would be very difficult. I think in the court of public opinion, Matt uh, uh, committed some very serious uh, transgressions that were, that warranted firing, you know, immediate firing he said he's done things that he's ashamed of. Uh, 
you know, women have come forward talking about it, even though they one said it was consensual. I think our definition of consensual has changed dramatically in the wake of Me Too. So, um, you know, I think I think it would be pretty difficult. Uh, but again, that's that would not be my decision to make. Um, so I don't yeah. know. It was so interesting to me the way that you handled that felt, you know, fair um, in in both senses of the word, fair to the whole person and fair to the severity of what happened. But what struck me was that the gossip columnists all want to pick up, oh, because they know his name, right? And there's all those other men who are just below, may even have more power than someone like Matt Lauer in those organizations who may be- mm, There are very few people have more power than Matt at NBC. At right, but I'm saying that there's there's all these people whose names are not, you know, bold-faced names, but who nonetheless are wealthy, powerful men who acted inappropriately. There's probably a whole lot more of them than there are of the above-the-fold Names. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have been a pioneer in the media industries. You have been a pioneering woman. What would you say to women who aspire to what you have achieved? What would I say in terms of what? Career aspiration, life moving forward, their dreams. I mean, I think that I, you know, Ina Garten and I talked about how you're not supposed to use the word lucky, but let's face it, for everyone, male, female, anyone, there is an element of luck that I think contributes to, to someone's career. But I do, you know, I think there's no substitute like hard work. And um, I think people, one of the things that I wanted to show in this book is that I worked really, really, really hard. I worked hard all the way through my career. I was extremely persistent when I was told I wasn't good enough. I just worked and worked and worked. And I do follow the Malcolm Gladwell school of thought that it takes 10,000 hours to become proficient at anything. So, you know, I think that you have to put in the time. And, and so that's one thing. And I would also say you have to really, really love it because it requires a lot of sacrifices. You have to you know, put your career first. I intentionally uh, did not want to be too involved romantically with anyone all through my 20s um, because I didn't want to have that enter into my decision making when I, I wanted to have the flexibility of being able to move. And I really wanted to, to focus on my career in my 20s. And I also talked in my book tour about the importance of being intentional. You know, when I hit 30 and I thought, well, I saw this t-shirt that said, I can't believe it. I forgot to have children. And I thought, oh, holy cow, maybe that's me. <laughs> I need to find a life partner because that was also important to me. So I set out to find a life partner as just as I set out to, to excel professionally. And, um, you know, that's when I met met my late husband, Jay, but, um, you know, it's not like the secret or anything like that, but I do think you have to figure out what you want and be very intentional. You know, I, I remember seeing that movie falling in love with Meryl Streep and, and Robert De Niro, and they meet in a bookstore and they have this like soul, you know, connection. And it just doesn't really happen that way. You know, you have to, I think it's a numbers game. You have to cycle through a lot of people. 
And um, you called you Jay. Know, huh? You called Jay when he didn't I call did. you. You were like, why am I sitting around waiting? There's a the women are liberated now, they tell me, I think. And I picked up the yeah. phone and you called him and he said, oh, yeah, I remember you. And you said, let's have dinner. And then here uh, a, a great portion and, of the book and, is devoted to him and your love and how his passing turned into really a crusade for you with uh, colon cancer. And that was a side uh, talk about an extreme close up that we saw on the Today Show and that was extremely brave in terms of what David was talking about and some of the pioneering stuff you've done. That was that saved a lot of lives. Yes. Yeah. Well, the uh, colonoscopies increased 20 percent. And so that translates into a lot of people who are walking around today because they got screened, which is really gratifying, doesn't bring Jay back. But at least. You know, I think when someone's sick, especially with cancer, really any life-threatening disease, you feel so powerless. And I think that I wanted to be proactive because I'm a very can-do person. And sometimes you can't do anything when it comes to a, a terminal illness. And it's just beyond frightening, especially if you feel like you're able to control the situation or or make something happen. And so that was extremely cathartic for me to say, okay, I couldn't do this, but I can do that. And I think it was also very healing for me. Mm. Katie, your career has spanned. So uh, reading the book, it was just this amazing thing. It was like, there's a real before and like when you started, it feels like the before times, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it was before 9-11. It was before Me Too. It was before the rise of even cable. Like it, you're, you're there with the rise of cable. There's all these kind of thresholds that we cross. There's no going back to before the iPhone, you know. Do you have any thoughts about what the next threshold? We're always sort of on the cusp of one of these thresholds. Do you feel like you know what's the next one we're going to pass through is? Um, I don't, uh, I don't know what the next threshold is. I don't know what the future of media really holds. I think there's a lot of great journalism being done, but there's just so much of it and it's so constant. And, you know, I was on this Aspen commission I co-chaired for disinformation. It was interesting. Uh, Rashad, Robinson, who's head of Color of Change, was on it. And, you know, he cautioned us against talking about the days when there were three network newscasts and you know, <laughs> these trusted authoritarian, uh, you know, authority figures and, and the anchor men. He cautioned us to not describe it as the good old days, because in many ways, those voices were dominated by white males. They, there were a lot of people who didn't have access to the airwaves, who could not, um, you know, let their voices be heard, which I thought think is really an important reminder that the democratization of media has made it much more accessible for marginalized communities to, to have a voice. I think it's ushered in social change in a very positive way. Um, it's, it's made people exposed to people. You know, Brian Stevenson talks a lot about being proximate. If you can't be proximate in your physical space and you live in kind of a de facto segre segregated society, at least you can kind of be proximate 
in a virtual world because you're being exposed to people who are different than you all the time. Now, the the counter argument is you're you know you're creating your own personal media ecosystem and you're not getting exposed to different points of view. So that's the counterbalance to that. But anyway, I I don't know. What do you I mean? What do you guys think well, is part the next? Of, isn't isn't part of it that we're allowing people to curate some of the news when we when we trust them? So one of the it, you, the best example from your from Katie Kirk Media is you have something called uh, the Wake Up Call every day, which is a well, Monday through Friday, a curated kind of and look Saturday. at and Saturday how the news. What's what's happened overnight? What we think is important? A lighter side. We've been doing that since Drudge, since uh, you know the Skim. Some of those things that we are waking up and looking at on our devices as the first stop, I think, becomes one of the things that we're going to continue to do. And I think more and more people like you are going to be doing that or developing something. Not to again for transparency's purpose. Not to just give us Katie Couric's idea of what the morning news should be, but to just have somebody distill it for us in some kind of way. Because broadcasting has become narrowcasting, and we've just have got to trust somebody. We don't have Cronkite anymore. We don't have Huntley and I have this weird hope that this this seems confusing to us because we didn't grow up with it. I have four kids, and as they grow up, their ability to navigate this landscape effortlessly – it never ceases to amaze me. Right. So I, I kind of have this feeling like, oh, I just can't see it. Right. They're gonna, right? they're gonna uh, be fine. It's gonna yeah, be the, okay. The, right. We, we are not. <laughs> yeah, we're not. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. No, uh, that's interesting. And you feel like they're able to self curate. By the way, I think newsletters are the new newspapers, um, yeah. and that's yeah. why you see so many people doing newsletters because. And the people new Cronkite, phone. the new authority, like like the thing that people looked to Walter Cronkite for was like, oh, someone, but like. There's no Walter Cronkite, but now there's a multiplicity of voices, and you can find the authority that you trust in the areas you care about the most. I guess, but you know, I guess the the question is, with no, you know, yeah, maybe maybe we don't need an authority figure, but you know, it, it's hard because what is truth and what are facts, and now. What was the famous quote? Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. They're not entitled to their own facts. I think that was Daniel Patrick Moynihan because I think Tim Russer used to used to quote that, and he worked for him. But right. but then we now, know, we now live in an era of alternative facts, and that that can't be a good thing, right? No. Um, no. And yeah. so neither is cancel so, culture, and I don't know where we're going after that. I don't know whether that pendulum ever swings back, but. It, it feels a little frightening. Did you read the – you had it on your thing the other day, uh, what uh, Putin said, that this was exactly how it was when the Bolsheviks came in in 1915. We were being well, told – Well, that's why it feels like it has to You think this, back. you have to think that. I hope that, that so. forgiveness has to come back into the culture. Hey, well, listen. I think it's also – I just think it stifles, you know, uh, 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 the, the fair and um, sort of – this whole idea of it, of exchange, the marketplace of ideas, you know, mm-hmm. it's it, it too just, easy. It, it, it closes too many stores and you yeah. can't, you can't have a conversation unless you adhere to a certain kind of narrative and you can't ask questions. And I think, I don't know, I'm very interested in, in quote unquote cancel culture, which just like 
critical race theories, a theory has been weaponized by, you know, the extreme right. But, you know, I, I do think there has to be some kind of grace and some kind of, you know, just when you think of human nature, people whose ideas are rejected or who are shamed, um, you're not going to win them over. And I think if we have fair and honest conversations with open-hearted conversations, that, that that's the way to, to shift hearts and minds, but, you know, maybe those hearts and minds could never be shifted and they have to be left behind as a new generation changes mores and attitudes. And, um, you know, I, I just don't know, maybe I'm naive to think that a little grace could go a long way with helping people make progress, maybe not, maybe more incrementally and not radical progress. I love that idea though, about grace and the idea. I don't think it's naive to think that, um, uh, some return to that is, is possible. And I think that kids who are being born into this environment, you know, I grew up in a world where people, where homosexuality literally didn't exist. Like, as far as I, I, you, I could have told you when I was 10 years old, they'd be like, sometimes men marry men. I'd be like, no, no, they don't. You're making that up. And that's, and my brother is gay and like all, so many of my friends are gay. And it's like, what, this is just a reality. My kids are growing up in that reality where it's just like, oh yes, no, there are gay people. Like it seems so basic, but like. I talk about that in my book too. You know, I went from interviewing Matthew Shepard's parents, Judy and Dennis, asking them how if it, you know, in essence, was it devastating to hear that Matthew was gay to then, you know, flash forward or fast forward uh, 17 years. And I'm interviewing Jim Obergefell, the plaintiff in the Supreme Court same-sex marriage case. And it's pretty mind boggling and something to celebrate. My, you know, my husband's brother is gay and he's been with his partner since they were in college or shortly thereafter. And, you know, it was just something that was so hush hush and not really discussed. I don't know how old you are, Scott, you look younger than I am, but you know, it was just a very different world back then. And, you know, I thought maybe my gym teacher lives with my health teacher and I, you know, in elementary school, like, I think those two, they live together. They, they're roommates, but they were probably a couple and it just didn't even enter into our, our part of the conversation. Well, or not in the conversation, but even into our, our, our consciousness that this was a possibility. And, and thank goodness that's been such a positive change in the culture. And so that's just sort of a sky is blue that. fact for, for them, for the kids growing up now. Like, right. it's like, oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's non-controversial. Uh, don't go, Katie. Just uh, to answer this. Uh, who's going to play you in the in the movie version? There's no movie version. Come on. <laughs> Come on. There's I a couple of movies in this Katie book. Katie Couric plays Katie There's Couric a Lifetime the movie, movie with uh, with Jay. There's, a, there's a, like a Scorsese movie with you in Cuba. Um, there's a bunch of different ways. There's a bunch of different things we could do. Um, Hollywood will come calling. Listen, the no, book, I don't, based I don't on the impressions that. you do in the audio book, yeah. I think there's a Judd Apatow version of this. I, I think, I think the morning show has probably satiated any kind of interest or curiosity about 
kind of this world. Do you like um, that show? We're talking about the Apple Plus TV show, I, the morning I, show. I, I, with- I think the first season was well done. I mean, you know, it's a little weird to watch when when someone's <laughs> yeah when someone's kind of uh, writing about a world you inhabited for 15 years. Of course, you're going to be like, wait, that would never happen, or wait, right? I thought some of the stuff was handled. The Billy Crudup character as the as the guy running the network is pretty accurate to me. I mean, he's that's good. But everything else seems kind of Aaron Sorkin wannabe-ish to me, where everybody's walking and talking all the time, and the little gal from the Kentucky is a hit on the you know Reese's character, and suddenly she's the anchor the next day. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, some I, of it some of it stretches sort of credul- credulity. Is cred- that the word mm-hmm. you guys? Yeah. Yes. Um, and say it uh, like Larry King. Say credulity like Larry King. Credulity. <laughs> <laughs> but um, maybe rest in peace. We shouldn't probably make that much fun. Oh, no, but, no. Uh, He'd but, be thrilled. But, uh, he would be thrilled thought, to know I you remember. Some him. of the nuances about the Steve Carell character, like these two sides of this person, very charming and charismatic and well loved, and yet had this other side that was, you know just you know engaging in grossly inappropriate behavior kind of taking advantage of underlings in a way that was almost i mean sort of the way it unfolded um i thought i thought they did a good job of that um you were going to do a show with diane english at one point that was sort of like that right what happened to that we were going to do um yeah about uh, and Michelle Pfeiffer was uh, attached to the project. It was going to be about kind of a an anchor woman who just got sick of the fluff of the morning and and was sort of uh, decided to go someplace else. I was pushing for her to go to like Yahoo or BuzzFeed and and make it a real fish out of water story. But it was it was it was really it was really funny. And it was also about fame and about, um, you know. Like who got the best table at the restaurant, all the bullshit that goes with with all the kind of um, pecking order of celebrity. And I think it would have been really funny. And HBO, I think, had ordered it. And then there was a big change in the executives and then they ended up not. But I thought it I thought it could have been really, really funny. Well, and, Katie Couric um, Media could produce run. that now. Well, I just don't know if there's an appetite for that kind of show with, you know, I think the morning shows kind of sucked all the oxygen out of that. Um, but the second the second season was 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 kind of all over the place. Um, but it, it's it's interesting for me to watch it just because I'm fascinated by what they do with the characters and sort of their idea of what that world is really like. And um, so it's it's sort of, it's fun. It's fun to watch for me. I have one question um, about the making of your memoir. Would you tell us a little bit about the process behind it or you as a writer, how you like to write when you like to write or how you determined all of the pieces that would come together to make this remarkable book? Well, you know, I, I kind of treated my life, David, do you see? I just did that Oprah thing. <laughs> I, I, I kind of treated my life in chapters, honestly. And so I might sit down and and just write about 
um, you know, Jay and write about finding out when he was sick and, um, you know, kind of do that. And then I, I met with his oncologist and his gastroenterologist who was on call when, when he was diagnosed. And I wrote that in the book. We got together and had a, had a drink one night on the Upper East Side and kind of trying to put the pieces together, what Jay knew, what he didn't know. But I, I just sort of start writing about certain periods of my life. And then I worked very, very closely with an incredible writer named Lucy Kalin, who was the editor-in-chief of O Magazine, speaking of the aforementioned O, and um, also had written extensively for like publications like Esquire and GQ. She's just a fabulous writer. She also is around the same age as I am, came up in magazines. So we have this certain Vulcan mind meld when it came to uh, you know, the sensibilities of news organizations or journalism, media, you know, at any given time. And then I worked also very closely with um, a young woman named Adriana Fazio, who's 24, who wrote her thesis about me at Notre Dame, interviewed me. And I said, wow, Adriana, you know more about me than I know <laughs> about me. So why don't you come and help me? So the three oh. of us worked together really, really well. We had a lot of fun working together, had kind of the same sense of humor. And we wanted to write a book that was really fun to read. Obviously, the parts when Jay is sick and my sister was sick um, aren't fun to read and really upsetting and losing my parents. There are a lot of sad things in it and also enraging things. But we wanted to write a book that was just really fly on the wall and, and, um, you know, invited people into my head for better or for worse to kind of sit, you know, sit in my seat and kind of observe everything that was happening around me. Um, listen, you have been very, very, very generous with your time. Uh, you sort of read us the book, and now I don't have to do what uh, Scott did. I'm going uh, to. Yes, though. you do. You I should to. anyway. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Uh, by the way, say my name. You've said everybody's name, but mine. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, this no. has been, I've been bugging Katie for so long to come on and do this. Thank you so much for joining us on the yeah, Thank you for being here. Be sure, be sure and get the book. Be sure and uh, listen to, she was one of, we were talking about Me Too and we never talked about Ed Turner. Uh, the man who said she had <laughs> another uh, great impression another, in the audiobook. Uh, another, yeah. Really? It's all oh, there. yeah. It's all <laughs> the dr when he comes in drunkenly, uh, Telling oh, you that guys was the, Ted Turner, not Ted, Ed Turner. Oh, no, no, that's Ted. No, Ed was no relation to Ted, but oh, Ed was the... this shit all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to this shit all over the place. <laughs> Um, listen, this has been tremendous. Thank you. Uh, continued success with, uh, Katie Kirk media. Everyone should get wake up the, uh, the wake up call, wake up Bill. call. And, uh, she doesn't read it to you. There's I was no version. We should do, we should do one at night and call it nightcap. There, there you go. go. Wake, go to bed with Katie Couric. Wake up with Katie Couric. Or, it or maybe that's not the right slogan. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not the way we want to go with that. Um, I know. Ben used to come up and say, I wake up with you every morning. And I'd be like, ew. ew. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. I mean, these guys were right. I mean, you were at a time and a place when it was all 
And, and I, I mentioned the Ed Turner thing because that was brave of you to write that note to him. People who read the book will know what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed having you here on the Accutron Show. Come back, write another book and come back real soon. Bye, guys. Thank Thanks, you Katie. so much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thank the that, Katie, well, so, wait, Katie, that was amazing. Thank you for listening to the Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.